Good morning. Thank you so much for worshiping with us at Luke 418 Fellowship. If you're a guest with us, we have a welcome card in the seat back pocket that's right there in front of you. Uh, And if you would fill that out and turn it in to one of our boxes there in the back, uh, it'll give you a little bit more information about Luke 418. Today, the, the choir is going to call us to worship with a medley of songs. That means a group of, of songs uh, about heaven. And not just about the streets of gold and the benefits of heaven, but that heaven is a place that God's family goes to see His face. And that we're all on this journey together. So if you know uh, any of these songs, please sing them with us today as the choir sings the Heaven Medley. Would you welcome them today?
incredible. What a wonderful time just to open up singing about heaven and what it's going to be like when we get there singing and praising the Lord all the days long. I love as Amazing Grace says at the end that when we've been there 10,000 years, right, it's as if we just began. Well, I have just one or two announcements. I won't go through many because I I just don't feel like we, we just need to keep singing. And uh, so I'll just say thank you so much for being here today. Our announcements are all on our bulletin that is sent out on Fridays. You're welcome to get that on uh, at the back. You can fill that out. We'll send you that email and we'll send all those to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and let's get started. Father, we just love you. We praise you. We give you all glory. And Father, as we take this time of just worshiping you, I pray that our hearts will be prepared for this time. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord, but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? He who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Father, may our hearts be pure this morning. Father, search us and know us. Show us any evil way about us, O God. That today we may worship in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray today that our singing will be an overflow of our heart towards you. Father, I pray that in the preaching of your word, that it will be your word that goes forth because we know that it will not return void. And Father, I pray that your name will be glorified in this place today. The only reason we can rejoice about heaven is because you sent your son to die on the cross that we may be saved. And Father, the reason that heaven is heaven is because you're there. Your son is there. And we rejoice. 
So Father, we love you and we praise you and we give you all glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Would you stand, say hello to the person next to you, and we will continue in worship today. Jesus is our firm foundation. We can rest on his holy word. Jesus, you're my firm foundation. I know I can stand secure. Hebrews tells us that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Redemption didn't start at the cross. From Genesis to Revelation, we bear witness to Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was talking about. And today we bear witness to the gospel. That's one of the main reasons that we sing together, to remember until the day he comes. 
So Heidi is going to lead us in uh, the verses of these songs. And then we as a church will respond with a doxology of praise. Could we practice that together? Could we practice the singing? Praise the Father. Let's sing together. Praise the Father.
Read this with me, church. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Immediately I think of Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Every time I've read that scripture, I've I've thought of the things that, that are written down in our Bibles. But guess what? We just read in John that Jesus is the word. And so as we sing this song, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. We could just as easily replace that with Jesus is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto our path. He is our example in all things. Let's sing this together. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path.
Jesus is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, just give you honor and glory. You are do it, Lord. You are worthy of our all, our everything. And though our hearts are wondering, we pray that you would draw us back, that we would abide in you daily together as the family of God, because we know that this journey has an end. And we would like to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us to lead us along in the right way that we might not sin against you. Thank you for the example that you've given us in Jesus Christ. The death he died. The resurrection. And we know that he's coming again. We just pray that until you come through the clouds, that we would be doing your will. Harvest is so plentiful, Lord, and we pray that you would send us out where you have us. That we would not look to the left or the right, but look at the light and the life of man. That is Jesus Christ. In his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I love singing praises to the Lord. I pray that all of us have a song in our heart and that we are constantly just singing to the Lord through our life, through every bit of our spoken word, that we would just continue to lift up praises and honor and glory to Him and Him alone. We have been in the Sermon on the Mount for a few months, and we're going to continue in Matthew chapter 5 today, 17 through 20, hopefully, 17 through 20. So this passage of Scripture here is just so incredible. As I studied, as I continue to seek the Lord over this, that just continue to grow and grow and grow. And so I told uh, Brother Randy, I told Aaron that we may be here a little while today. Um, see, the problem is, is there's no good place to just stop this in the middle of it. So I'm going to just share as the Lord leads and, and we'll get out when the Lord uh, allows us to get out this afternoon or this morning. But if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. And let's read together. Or I'll read here. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask right now that you would speak. Place me on the front row and allow me to hear what you are speaking today. Holy Spirit, illuminate the pages so that our hearts may comprehend and that we may walk 
and obedience of your word. And Father, I'm desperately dependent on you today and every day to proclaim your truth. But I stand on the promise that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. So Father, we love you and praise you. It's in your precious and holy name, the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, just a reminder, we've seen the Beatitudes. And remember that we must be in Christ before we can go and do for Christ. The being must come before the doing. And we saw in the Beatitudes this, the, the characteristics of a believer in relationship to God and in relationship with others. Last week we looked at how Jesus calls us the salt of the world and the light, or the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we saw how when we are truly salt, how that affects our culture and those around us. And when we're the light, we are shining first. We are showing uh, what's, what's going on in the darkness, right? But it's also showing the path how to come out of the darkness. And what is that path? That path is through none other than Jesus Christ. For Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now in verse 17 through 20, Jesus begins to speak about the law. And so we pick up in verse 17 and he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill it. Now, what's interesting here is that this understanding of law or the prophets. Now, when we think of the law, many times we think of Exodus 20 and we think about the Ten Commandments, right? And when we think of the prophets, oftentimes we first jump to the prophetic books that we see in the Old Testament. But in this moment, Jesus is specifically speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament. He says, I did not simply come to abolish the Old Testament, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is affirming the Old Testament. Jesus is affirming the Old Testament. Let me ask this question to you today. What is your view of the Old Testament? Now, you don't have to shout that out. You don't have to speak it. But Jesus is speaking here and saying that the Old Testament is God's spoken word. Now, this is very interesting because Jesus doesn't just say it here by saying that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. He didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. But he also, throughout his life, gives a verification that the Old Testament is God's holy word. How? By referencing it over and over and over. Think about throughout his life. I'm not going to show the, screen, uh, the, the scriptures on the screen because it would take too long. But in Luke 11.51, he speaks of Abel. In Matthew 24, 27 through 29, he speaks of Noah. In John 8, 56, he speaks of Abraham. In Matthew 8, 11, he speaks of Isaac and Jacob. Matthew 26, he speaks of David. Luke 4, 25 through 26, he speaks of Elijah. Luke 4, 27, he speaks of Elisha. Matthew 12, 39 through 41, he speaks of Jonah. Matthew 8, 4, he speaks of Moses. Not only does he speak of these prophets of old, not only, uh, but he also speaks of manna that was collected in uh, the, the desert. 
He also speaks of the book of Deuteronomy when he stands against the enemy and he quotes God's holy word and he says to the enemy, ultimately, get behind me, go. Why? Because God's word, it says this and he speaks the book of Deuteronomy. He spoke of events like Sodom and Gomorrah. He spoke of the event such as Jonah in the belly of a large fish. Church, do you believe that the Old Testament is God's spoken word? From Genesis to Malachi, every verse is God's word. Can I tell you that it is extremely important how you view Genesis 1 through Malachi? If you think that some of the stories in the Old Testament are are not real, if you disagree with portions of Genesis 1 through 11, then let me just tell you, church, your uh, understanding of Christ is wrong. Because Christ is proclaiming that the Old Testament is God's word. Now, I get that there are powerful speakers out there today that will say, well, Jonah's didn't really happen. Or Genesis 1, you know, maybe it was that God spoke and then, then over time, evolution began to step in. Let me just tell you, when you begin to remove portions of the Old Testament, your understanding of Christ is incorrect. Because Christ continually confirms That God's word is inspired by God, spoken by God, and given from Genesis 1 all the way to the end of the Old Testament. See, God's word is God-breathed to 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Isaiah 55.11 says that God's word will accomplish that which it desires, that which it was set out to do. 1 Peter 1, 24-25 says that God's word will endure forever. And so Jesus is saying here that until the end of time, it says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. I cannot tell you how important this is for you to see that Genesis through Malachi is all God's spoken word, just as Matthew to Revelation. That's the reason why I can't get enough from Genesis to Revelation. I don't just have a New Testament up here. And I'm not just going to preach from the New Testament. Because it's all God's spoken word that will endure forever. And let me tell you, the Old Testament continually proclaims that Jesus is coming. The New Testament tells us about the work of Christ and how he died on the cross and he rose again. And then the epistles tell us about the church, which we are living in that day today. Revelation shares with us about what's going to take place in the end. Church, we must believe the whole Bible. When we take pieces of it out, we are saying that our understanding of Christ is wrong. But then Jesus goes on and he says, not only is he affirming it, but he also says that he is fulfilling the law and the prophets. Look back at verse 17. Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, this is a powerful, powerful 
powerful statement that Jesus is speaking here. Let's break down the law for a minute. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law and prophets. We'll take them one at a time. Let's look at the law. Now, the law is more than just Exodus 20 or the Ten Commandments. The law was kind of broken into, down into to, to three categories. You had the moral law. And in the moral law is what we get, the Ten Commandments. The first four of those are a relationship with God. The last six are focused on our relationship with people, which is interesting. Jesus said, when they asked what is the greatest commandments, he said, love God and love people, right? He said, first, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then what does he say? He says, and love others as well. And, and so we see that in the Ten Commandments. But then, not only the moral law, but there was the ceremonial law, or the law over the sacrifices and the feast, and, and how they must sacrifice, and what they had to do to cleanse themselves, to be able, for the high priest, to be able to go in on the Day of Atonement, and all the different things that they had to do. But then you also had the civil law, or the judicial law. This was a law that that was set up for the people to give understanding of how they are to behave towards others in different circumstances. So what was the purpose of the law that was given? Why did God give the law? I believe that there's three main reasons why God gave the law. The first reason was to show God's holiness. To show His holiness. Listen, the law is the standard that we are to live to, right? It's righteousness. If you live righteously, then you are living according to the law. Well, where do we get our standard of living? From God himself. It's who he is. God is the one who uh, put together right and wrong. God is the one who created the law. God is, is the law in sense because he is that standard. It's his holiness that we are called to live to. And so when he gives them the law, he's giving them their understanding of how holy God is. Now, could the nation of Israel live according to the law? No. Can we live according to the law, in our own power, and our own strength? No. And so what he's doing is, is he's showing his holiness. But guess what else he's doing? He's also showing us our need for a Savior. Because sin's wages is death. The law shows us that our wages is death. So we see God's holiness in the law, and we see our need for a Savior. But there was one other reason that I believe that God put together the law, and that was also to set apart the nation of Israel from the pagan cultures all around them. So that they would be different, set apart. Isn't that what what God speaks to them in Exodus? Hey, you're going to be my people, set apart. Is that not what Jesus, uh, God speaks to us through Paul, or excuse me, through Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says you are a holy nation, right? A holy priesthood, set apart for God's own possession. So we see three main purposes of the law. One is that it shows God's holiness. Two is that it shows us our need for a Savior. And three, it sets people apart. Now here's the problem. The Levitical law, as good as it was at pointing out our sinfulness 
and our need for a Savior, it was powerless in bringing about salvation in our life. See, the law showed us the fact that we didn't meet up to the holiness of God. But that's what it does. There's no salvation in the law. Why? Because all the law does is bring about the condemnation, or it brings about the the punishment, shows us that we are under God's holy, righteous law standard. And so because the law could save no one, Jesus came to fulfill the law. What does this mean that he fulfills the law? Well, Oftentimes, when you think of fulfill, you may think of a puzzle that's missing a piece, and you've got to put one piece in there, and that fulfills it. But that's not, that's not what he's speaking here. When it says that Jesus fulfills the law, what it means is that he lived out and obeyed every piece of the law. He lived out and obeyed every aspect of the law. Now, I want to read to you a passage that uh, I want you to grasp the, 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 the heaviness of this, this passage. It says this in Galatians 4, 4 through 5, before you put it up on the screen. Remember, where do we get righteousness and holiness or understanding? We look to God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the triune God. That is who he is, holy, righteous. Now let's look at this. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law. Now think about this for a second. God's holiness, Jesus' holiness is the standard. But God placed his son under the law. And why did he do that? So that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as son. Church, I don't know if you're, if you're fully grasping this, but think about this for a second. God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is the one who, who created this because of who they are, their holiness, their righteousness. And God put his son under the law. Which means that if he were to uh, do one thing incorrect of the law, he would deserve death just as you and me. But God placed his son under the law so that he could take the punishment that we deserved because of the law upon him. See, when we start to think about this, we, we must go straight to the cross Because when Jesus goes to the cross, it was because he was under the law and he had lived it out perfectly, which means the wage for him was not death because he had no sin in him. But because he was under the law and he lived it out perfectly, when he went to the cross, he could take your sin, he could take my sin, he could take our punishment, and it could be placed upon him on the cross. If Jesus would not have been placed under the law, we would have problems, but he was placed under it so that he could take our punishment upon the cross. This is huge news, church. When we think about the law, we've got to recognize and look at the cross. 
Look at Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He became a curse on the cross so that we who were cursed under the law could be set free. This is powerful. Jesus comes under the law to take our wages upon him on the cross. That's the reason why he is the only sacrifice. He is the only way to the Father. Why? Because no one else is holy, perfect, came under the law, lived a holy and perfect life to take our sins upon him. No other religion, no other thought, no other person, only Jesus Christ. So how did he fulfill the law? Well, I'm going to go quickly here, but morally, and the, civil, the moral law and the civil law, just to be very quick, I just want to take you to two places. One is what did Pilate say when Jesus was in this, uh, this trial that was going on? He says, I find no what? I find no fault in this man. And then he says, I'm going to wash my hands of this. I, I don't see any fault in him. But can we go even further? What did the chief priest say? This is interesting. Mark 14, verse 55 and 56. Now the chief priest and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. Let me tell you, if there was one thing against the law that they could find, they would have been so excited But because the Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests couldn't find anything, this is what it says, for many were giving false witnesses against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Church, can I tell you that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he lived under the law and the whole time he obeyed every piece of the law. Morally, the civil law, but what about the ceremonial law? Man, I could spend weeks on this, but due to time, we'll jump to the book of Hebrews. And I'll read to you two short passages in Hebrew. In Hebrews 9, 22 through 26, it says, And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Remember the ceremonial law? They must uh, continue to have a sacrifice and the blood would cleanse them for for the time being until until they sinned again, right? And then they'd have to do it again. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of these things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest entered the holy place year by year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundations of the world. But now, once and the consummation of the age, he has made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Hebrews 10, 10 through 18 says this. By the will, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which never could take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time onward until the enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. And then he, and he then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Church, we could go on and on and see how Jesus was uh, the sacrificial lamb and how he was the Passover lamb. And we could go on and on and see all the implications of how he fulfilled them. But I'm telling you, right here in the book of Hebrews, Jesus gave his life once and for all to fulfill the sacrificial law. And he gave us his, his life, his blood, so that there would be no other need for a sacrifice. If Jesus would not have fulfilled the sacrificial law, we would still need to be sacrificing today. But praise God, he came and once and for all poured out his lifeblood for you and for me. We see here that Jesus fulfills the law morally, civilly. We see that he fulfills a ceremonial law. But it also says that he fulfills the law and the prophets. Conservatively speaking, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies about his life. I just want you to think about the odds. I, don't, I, I used to be able to tell people how big the odds were, but it's so big that it doesn't even like compute in my head. So I just tell people it's unexplainable. That's how big our God is. It's not unexplainable when you know that God is the author of all things and that he was there in the beginning. You know why I love Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and believe it? It's because the one who gave us this was there. It's a first-hand account. Jesus gives us a first-hand account. Jesus and, and God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit spoke, breathed this word into existence. And Jesus came and fulfilled every prophecy about him. Just to give you a few we see the prophecy of his birth in Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and a honey at, that, at the time. He knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. We see here in this scripture that Jesus will come as a virgin, uh, from a virgin and that his name will be Emmanuel. We see about his life in Isaiah 53. 
in just the first couple of verses. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor the appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken a man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one whom men hid their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Surely our grief he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. What about the prophecy about his death? Listen, Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 when he's on the cross. And Psalm 22 verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you realize that if you read Psalm 22, that on down in verse 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, it speaks about the crucifixion? Church, crucifixion wasn't even a thing when this was written. The reason that that it's so true is because God, who knows all things, wrote the book. He knew what Jesus was going to go through. He gave the inspired word of God. And it was written down in Psalm 22. It says that he was pierced through. It says that his garments would be divided among them. And they would cast lots for them. It says that that these people would surround him. Church, do we see that Jesus not only fulfills the law, but he fulfills the prophets? Which means Jesus is the fulfillment of all that we're waiting for throughout the Old Testament. They're waiting for a Savior. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Savior. And Jesus has come. And He fulfills every law. Even though He's under the law, He fulfills it. And He fulfills all of the prophets and how they spoke about Him. This is huge news, church. Jesus continues on, though. And He says, I have come to fulfill the law. I'm affirming the Old Testament. But then he says this. He says, But unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus now shares the heart of the law. He now shares the heart of the law. Can you imagine this profound statement? See, the disciples and the people around Jesus would have been like, well, uh, do you realize that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, like the Pharisees, that word itself means separate. They've set themselves apart to follow the law. And they've even added extra pieces to the law. Do you realize that the scribes have devoted their life to the teaching of the law? They gave their life to studying it. And they became in some sense an authority of the law. They would transcribe the law with great detail to make sure that there was no mistake in it. And then Jesus says that unless your righteousness is greater than their righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Profound statement. But what Jesus was saying is that it's about the heart. John Stott put it this way, Christian's righteousness is to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees in kind, 
rather than degree. Christian's righteousness is to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees in kind rather than degree. It's not a matter of counting the number of commands we have managed to keep. It's the righteousness of the heart. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had ultimately mistaken the holiness of God, and the purpose of the law. They were trying to live up to all these standards so that they would be deemed righteous. But the problem is, is that the scripture tells us that one sin breaks the law. And because of that, the wages of that one sin is death. Why was Jesus so hard on the religious people of the day? Why was he so hard? I mean, listen, the only people that I see in God's word that he is so, like, just strong about is the Pharisees and Sadducees. Even a chapter in there about the woes. Woe to you, Pharisee. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Why? I believe that the reason that he was so hard is because the people of the day were looking to them for understanding of God's law. And they were leading people astray. Can we take a moment? I told you we're going to go a little long today. Can we take a moment and look at what was going on with these Pharisees? Luke chapter 18, 9 through 17, Jesus gives this parable. And he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. You may want to mark that in your Bible. He was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, let's look at this for a minute. The Pharisee prayed to himself. He was trusting in his own righteousness. He was trusting in all that he was able to do. The Pharisee also did not understand God's holiness as he compared himself not to God's holy standard, but to others. Church, when we sit there and we say, well, man, I'm doing a whole lot better than that person or this person, you don't understand the holiness of God. We're not called to let other people be the standard because if that's the case, we could find somebody to be able to justify ourselves. But God's holiness is the standard. This Pharisee said, I do all of this more than he does. I'm so much better than he is. Because he did not understand God's holiness. But you know, one other thing he does is very interesting. He went beyond the law. As he said, I fast twice a week. I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament that calls him to fast twice a week. Now, somebody may be able to show me differently, but we know that the Pharisees created all these rules and these regulations that were trying to show how much more righteous they were. 
So can we take a moment here and close with the practical? I want to start by sharing this. The Pharisees are more concerned with their appearance of their worship than the object or the God of their worship. Church, we must be careful not to focus on our preference, our opinion, or our tradition. We are called to focus on God and God alone. When we begin to focus on all these other things, we miss truly worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, can I just be very transparent with you? We all, including myself, struggle with that. Because our preferences seem so strong and so real. And we've got to lay those things down and say, God, I'm going to worship you and you alone. But let's go even further into the practical. Jesus said, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so shall be called the least in the kingdom. And whoever keeps these and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom. But church, how, how do we fulfill the law? We can't. We can't in our own power and our own strength. Even James says this, James 2 verse 10, it says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. If we fall in one point of the law, then we're guilty in all of it. The law continues to point to our sinfulness and our inability to keep the law in our own strength. The law shows us that we're prisoners in our guilt. It shows us that we're enslaved to the enemy. It shows us all of that. And so how do we fulfill the law? This is why it's so important that Jesus was placed under the law, fulfilled the law, and died on the cross for you and for me and rose again on the third day. Church, we can fulfill the law. It says this in Romans 8, verse 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirements of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus, through the cross, through the resurrection of the dead, has taken our punishment from under the law upon him for those who believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And because of that, because of those who are in Christ Jesus, they fulfill the law's requirement not on their own deeds, but on what Jesus has done for them. Church, this is an amazing truth. This is amazing that we can fulfill the law through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But then you may say, but David, if we fulfill the law then are we under this law? There's this whole debate about the law versus grace. And I thought that we were not under the law anymore, but now we're under grace. And, and I want to just kind of take a second in that and look at it. See, 
Many times people say, David, we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace, and so we don't want to be legalistic. But really, in the Scripture, the law and grace are not to be separated. See, the law shows us our need for a Savior, and it's God's grace in Him giving us, through His Son, what we don't deserve, and that's salvation. When we are in Christ, we fulfill the law through Christ. The grace of God is what allows us to be set free from the punishment of the law. But it's also the grace of God that he gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can obey the law now. Think about it, church. It's the grace of God that removes the punishment that we deserve through salvation, through Jesus, but it's also the grace of God that gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can obey the law now. Church, when we look at this, we don't obey the law as a born-again believer because we want to be a super-Christian. We don't obey the law to gain approval. We don't obey the law to earn salvation. We don't obey the law out of obligation. We obey the law as a born-again believer because we love God and He's changed our heart. The Scripture says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen, we've had a heart change And by being filled by the Holy Spirit of promise, we can now walk in obedience of God's holy law. We can live a righteous life. Where do we understand righteousness? Through God who gave us the law to show us that we were not righteous. But being filled by the Holy Spirit, we can now live out and obey the law. But we must be very careful, church. Because you remember the Pharisees, they created all these extra laws. And can I tell you that if we're not careful, we'll create laws too. See, what happens is is people will start taking their opinion, their tradition, their preference, and they'll make it a law in their mind. And then they'll expect other people to live according to it. Can I tell you? Can I be very transparent, very frank with you right now? That if you sit here today and you say that the only Bible that you can use is the King James Bible, then you have created a pharisaical law that you're placing on other people. But can I also say that if I stood up here and said you must be in the NASB, I'm doing the same thing. The law doesn't tell us to only use the King James And what happens is as people begin to take their preference, their opinion, their thought, and they create a law and then they place it on other people. That's called legalism. It's doing exactly what the Pharisees did. Can I go even even further? Can I say that, that there are some that may think that a certain style of worship is the only way to worship? It's okay to have that preference. It's okay to have that opinion. It's okay to have a thought that that's what you like. Let me say it that way. That that's what you like is a certain type of music. But when you begin to say that's the only way to worship, you're putting a pharisaical law on other people. Church, we're under the grace of God. And we need to start looking at the heart of the law. The heart of the law was to show us that we were in need of a Savior and to show us God's holiness. 
It's not to put us in a whole bunch of all these you can'ts and you can. All these do's and you don't. The law is to show us our need for Jesus. And it shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment and that He is the Savior and that He is the only way to the Father. Church, do you realize that we can fulfill the law through the power of God in and through us? And that we can walk in obedience of God's truth because of the Holy Spirit that he has placed within us. It's not, is it law or grace? It's by God's grace that we obey the law. But church, we must show the world. It's not about all this legalism. It's about God's mercy and his grace And that the law shows our need for a Savior. And that the only way that I can live the life I live is because of the grace of God that dwells within me. We need to be careful not to put laws on other people. But we need to stay true to God's holy word. Next week, we'll continue in the Sermon on the Mount. And... Jesus begins to look strictly at the moral law. And he begins to give even more of the heart behind it. And so we're going to take time next week and we're going to look even more at the heart behind the law. It shows the world when we live something that we can't do in our own power, our own strength, that we have a good, amazing, great, powerful, awesome God who loves us. That he would send his son, his only son, who has been there before time began. And he would place him under the law so that he would live and fulfill and obey the law to take the wages of the law from you and pay for it in his own life upon the cross. So that we can fulfill the law Obey it. And when we stand before the holiness of God, He doesn't see our filthy rags, but He sees the righteousness of His Son.